0: I think the way to address imposter syndrome is to get honest with yourself about what you find difficult and set that as your goal to change that. I do think that some people can be helped by coaches. It's when things go wrong that I think some of those coaches struggle to know what to do. Diets worked. We wouldn't keep coming back. Just go lose weight and then you wouldn't come back to buy more of what they've got, right?
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. Now, today's guest, Shuru Izadi, She's an award-winning behavioral change specialist. She's a best-selling author. Her approach is inspired by her experience of working across the UK in the addiction treatment sector. She began to combine and adapt all of the most effective compassion-based elements in a practical toolkit of written exercises and motivational information, adding her own observation and experiences as she went. The toolkit evolved into two best-selling books, group coaching programs, and a busy private practice and sell-out talks. Her work has drawn attention from BBC Radio 1, The Telegraph, Read Magazine, The Pool, and more. She was recently on Stephen Bartlett's podcast as well. I can't tell you. What she has been through is a lived experience, and so that experience she has then taken to teach others how they can get through their addiction problems, whether that be drugs or alcohol, or whether that may be even your diet and food. Please listen in, pay attention, make some notes, because this lady knows what she's talking about. Sheru Izadi. Megaverse, the digital frontier of tomorrow. Megaverse stands at the cutting edge intersection of technology and imagination. It's a virtual realm where the limitless expanse of the digital universe unfolds, offering users unparalleled experiences and interactions. With its advanced metaverse platform, users can craft unique avatars, forge connections, and even establish their own digital estates. It's more than just virtual reality. Megaverse is an expansive digital civilization, teeming with opportunities for both individuals and brands. From immersive concerts to revolutionary retail experiences, Megaverse is redefining the way we engage with the digital world. As we stand on the brink of a new era, where the lines between our physical reality and the digital realm blur, Megaverse is poised to lead the charge in this brave new world. Dive in and discover a universe without bounds. This really is the future. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events. Who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year? Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Let's take the let's take the addiction of diet, okay? Because we can use that one, and it kind of applies to everybody. People give up very easily. They don't. They don't look at it and go, "I'm going to lose ten kilos." I'm going to lose ten kilos in the next. Um, I don't know, three months. That's what I've got to do and, and continue invariably. They start it and they stop it. Now, I've done that before. Okay, so I had spinal surgery 12 years ago and it whilst I was in hospital, I lost 16 kilos. Literally, very poorly, couldn't eat anything, that kind of stuff. And I thought I looked amazing. <laughs> Most people <laughs> looked, thought I looked like I was dying, but, but I thought I looked amazing. But I lost 16 kilos and... I put the weight on and I'm, I'm forever the guy that goes to the gym every single day at five o'clock in the morning. I work out for an hour every day. I have a meal plan that's delivered to me every day. So I have two, two meals a day that delivered to me. I am always eight kilos overweight. Okay. I'm 53 years old and it just, it's just a little bit overwhelming and it's a bit difficult because you'll have people that will say, particularly my wife, you're not fat. You look absolutely fine. If you lose weight, you'll look terrible. So that doesn't, that doesn't do anything to serve me, anything to help me. But also then I've got lifestyle. When I start something, okay, at the weekend, we go for dinners, we go for lunches, that kind of stuff. Um, my wife likes to do that. And then that weekend comes and the whole great plan of the week then ends on Saturday morning when she wants to go for brunch. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very normal situation for, for lots of people that are dealing with that type of issue. How do you solve that?
0: You want to be what? How do I solve the fact that some people want to lose weight that they can't lose because they're going does, on diets? How does
1: one solve that? Yeah,
0: I think you need to be doing things that help you to keep off lost weight, not lose weight. Uh-huh. So you want to cut to the end. This whole like activation and maintenance phase relies on you being motivated by the fact that you've lost weight, not by the fact that it's become easier to do the things that help you to keep off lost weight. So the shift needs to go from being small, making yourself smaller at any cost to becoming better and finding it easier to engage in the habits that keep you there. And for a lot of the people I work with, that means um, disrupting this all or nothing thinking that comes with dieting. I've blown it now. I'm already being bad. So I might as well be bad all day. And then I'll start on Monday. And the damage that you do between making that decision and Monday morning can be profound. Both in terms of, yeah, in terms of like how much you eat, but in terms of your self-esteem and your self-efficacy and the way you're speaking to yourself and I've blown it and I'm weak. Not only is that not helpful for weight management, um, it's not helpful for self-esteem and feeling like a failure just gets you back on the wagon of thinking you've got to pay someone to tell you what to do and take common sense when you know you can take common sense advice. Which is, if you were telling a friend of yours who wanted to lose weight, who just eaten a big brunch, what to do, you wouldn't go, oh, well, you should spend the rest of the day stuffing your face because <laughs> <laughs> you can't start anything till Monday and you messed up. So that's where I'm not really on board with diets because, like, you know, prescriptive, we're all on a diet, we've got to eat, right? But these prescriptive weight loss diets, because they rely on you being motivated by making your body smaller. Mm-hmm as opposed to getting better. And things are getting better, don't get me wrong. But the focus needs to be on getting better at making good decisions or rather decisions that you're proud of and and decisions based on the advice you'd give another person when it comes to all or nothing thinking, when it comes to the way that you speak to yourself, when it comes to the way that you want to treat your body and feel, and how you want to feel about the choices, how proud you want to feel of the choices you make on the spot, not chasing an outcome which can be precarious and abstract and make you think that, you know, I'll just cut corners here and cut corners there. And that's not aligned with getting better at something, like getting better at eating something objectively unhealthy and then having your next meal be a healthy one or getting better at exercising. So that then when you do have a, f- have a few days where you do things that are objectively, you know, for bodies make bodies bigger when people don't want to be, then you don't go back to day one with your exercise because you've thrown out the whole thing. Like when I, um, back in the day, when I used to go on diets all the time, I wasn't drinking water or exercising or doing anything else healthy unless I was already slim. Unless the diets had already worked and I'd white knuckled it there. Um, And of course, when you get there, you don't trust that you're going to stay there because you haven't learned anything and nothing's become easier. All you have to do is just hope to God that being slim is enough.
1: There seems to be a whole industry around shortcuts. And I was just watching a video just last week on social media where there was some lady that was in a chair swallowing something, um, a a doctor's video where she was swallowing something that had a string attached to it. And once it went inside her, the doctor pumped it up Mm -hmm. like a a balloon of some sort Mm -hmm. yeah, that lasted for three months. And then uh, after that, it dissolved inside the stomach. To me, to me, the, the, these things are all like shortcuts, like weight loss pills and uh, all the stuff the TikTok stuff they're all doing at the moment. I've forgotten the name of it, but they're they're doing the jabs, azampic, Azempic and that kind of stuff. I look at society and I say, if you've if you've got one of the next three things to sell, you'll make a fortune. And number one is significant. So, can you sell a million followers? Anyone? Uh, loads of people want a million followers on social media. Get me a million followers. How do I do that? Quick. Mm-hmm. Um, lose twenty kilos in the next four weeks with this tablet. Okay, you'll make a fortune or get rich quick. Okay, those three things. If you sell those three things, you'll make a lot of money. But invariably, this whole industry trying to create shortcuts for people, what damage does it then cause?
0: Well, they know it doesn't work because people have to come back or else what kind of business strategy is it? Like with diets, if diets worked, we wouldn't keep coming back. Just go lose weight and then you wouldn't come back to buy more of what they've got, right?
1: People have gastric bands.
0: I had one of them. I had to have it taken out. Pretty pretty sharpish, considering. But I lost a lot of weight. I just didn't learn how to eat differently. So as soon as I took it out, I put all the weight back on and more. And I felt like a massive failure.
1: Plus, just talk to me about that for a minute. So how old were you when you had your gastric band?
0: Uh, I was the th- second or third year of uni. So I guess I was in my early 20s.
1: And how much did you weigh?
0: I weighed, you know, it's so difficult when people ask me that because you always... It's it's always when you're at your heaviest where you don't want people to take pictures of you. You don't want to know the reality you know, you don't want to know the reality of things. I know I was a size twenty-six, I was around hundred and twenty-four kilos, something like that. Yeah. At my biggest, I guess. But that happened a few times where I got really big and really small, and really big and really small.
1: So you that way you'd have the gastric band surgery. Yeah. You lose how much?
0: I don't know, I guess eight stones around that. Yeah. But um, I'd done that before without the gastric band. And then I did it after.
1: Well, if you did it without a gastric band, you did it by eating the right way. So you learned the habits. No, I didn't do it by eating oh. the right way.
0: I would do it by starving myself. I'd do it through right. means that I don't want to even share so that other people aren't, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I was trying from the age of about 10 to lose weight one way or another. Wow. Yeah. So um, the gastric band was just one in many things that I tried that didn't work. So then I put it all back on. And actually, I put weight on even when I had the gastric band in, because you can you'd have you, you know you have it tightened or untightened or whatever, and I would have it tightened to a point where I could barely eat, because I still wanted to eat. My issue was that I had an emotional relationship with food that I didn't understand. So, but I also really, really wanted to be slim, um, and so that would go back and forth. So at some points, I would eat foods that would go down the band that I needed, like sugar, soft things go down go through ice cream, things like that, you can eat those. So there was a period of time where I gained weight with the band too. In fact, when I had the band taken out, I believe I'd put on quite a bit of weight because that's what happened. I think think one of the reasons that the bands move is when you overeat. Um, And of course, because I hadn't addressed my relationship with food, such was my addiction to food that I would eat to the point of potentially damaging it. And I had to have it taken out by... Emergency surgery essentially had to be done because I, yeah, it's horrible. Um, And then I put it all back on and I was fine with that for a little bit because I was just like, oh, thank goodness there's horrible things out my body. And I don't want to poo poo it too much because I know it can help a lot of people, I'm sure. Um, But it doesn't teach you to eat differently and it doesn't teach you to trust yourself, I don't think. Didn't teach me to trust myself. Um, So yeah, that's one of the, but then, you know, quick stuff is exhilarating. Mm. It is exhilarating. And that first couple of weeks when you're on a mission and you color code everything, you know, like, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do that. And you know, you lose lots of weight quickly and it's exhilarating. You're on your own little mission, you know? I get it. And I speak to a lot of people who get excited about that first phase, you know, where they're like, here we go, another Monday. But then invariably you get to a bit where you plateau and it's boring. And luckily, you remember that the only important thing in life isn't just making your body smaller. You know, you want to enjoy your life. You want to eat. You want to enjoy food. You want to go out. You want to be with your friends. You want to drink if that's your thing, whatever. And then if you haven't learned to do that in a way that helps you manage your weight, or you're stuck in this all or nothing, I've already blown it thinking, and then you spiral and catastrophize and then then think, I have to start on Monday, then unfortunately, that's the beginning of the end.
1: What's... What's the difference between addiction and habits? Because I think a lot of people don't identify addiction with themselves, but they might say, I've got some bad habits.
0: I think if you want to stop something, you're not able to do it. I'm not really, I don't really think the labels matter as much. Okay. I think it's because also I came from a clinical background of working and people who are physically addicted to stuff. And because the waiting list was so long, we really had to make a distinction with physical addiction. But what it meant was that, let's say, for example, someone had, now this is why I want to do more like alcohol programs and things for people who don't want to go to the 12-step programs. Because sometimes people go to like AA and go, oh, I'm not, I'm, I'm not this, this is not my problem. This is very extreme. And then they'll go away and carry on drinking in ways that are making them feel crap about themselves. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not really too concerned with the labels as much as I am helping people who feel powerless over their own behaviors. And that is having an impact on the things that are important to them internally and externally. Cause we're all engaging in habits constantly. Like I could be, you know, I could be in the habit of doing nothing all day. <laughs> so, um, we may as well, I, I think it's really extraordinary that we're not taught how to manage habits. We're not taught about self, like at, at school and stuff, you know, you're taught to, I was taught to, um, you know, study and get good results, you know, focus on getting good results, kind of like with dieting, right? But not how to get better at studying and how to get through those points where you get a bad result and deal with rejection and bounce back and how to deal with the fact that you feel like, you know, you're in a class where everyone's smarter than you are. These are the conversations I'm having with adults now. We're at the top of their game in work and stuff. Going, how how can I build this habit? How can I build this habit into my life? And I can't help but think, bloody hell! If we'd been given these tools earlier on, we're always engaging in habits. People want to change their routines and their habits all the time, and have to go go about it in this sort of rock bottom way.
1: And what, then, what's the relationship between most people's childhoods and the addictions that they experience?
0: That not only is highly debated, it's outside of my remit. Okay. So you want to talk to people like Gabal Mate, as mm-hmm. far as I'm concerned, in terms of trauma. Mm-hmm. So I know about it, but as an expert on your show, that's not my area. Okay. What I do know, though, is people really underestimate, myself included, the, um, how much you can talk about the things, the formative stages of your life and the truths that you've come to internalize about yourself and the way you've come to speak to yourself about who you are and what you deserve. um, We don't inquire about that. And I think a lot of us are scared to inquire. We think it's like a sort of Pandora's box. But like we say, like they say in addiction, um, in the 12-step programs, again, you know, everyone's already, you're already working a program. It's not like I'm coming and I'm helping people who are just blank. You're already having a conversation with yourself and it's come from somewhere. So I think we're all doing ourselves a disservice by not curiously, compassionately inquiring as to whose voice that is that tells us that we're the sort of person who starts things and doesn't finish them or um, why it is that we speak to ourselves differently to the way we speak to other people. Because very often you can can look back and go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's not my fault. It's really cool that I'm making it my responsibility. But what other choice did I have? That's, I was looking at the world around me and this is what they told me I was and this is what they told me I was capable of, I, I was, um, of achieving and this is what was reinforced to me. So now I speak to men like, let's say, for example, I had a client the other, the other day um, who wants to drink less and he realized some of the reasons that he gives for drinking um, go back to when he was like 15, like around confidence and being able to hold himself socially and this is a person now who has like thousands of people working for him and is definitely demonstrating that he has those abilities. So it was actually quite a, simple, quite a simple conversation we had where it was a sort of thank you and goodbye. But he had never looked back and thought, where did this start? He was so concerned with beating himself up about what was going on right now and what people were telling him about what was bad about his habits that he'd forgotten to go, hold on when I tell myself that I need this thing, when did that start? Because I seem to be disproving that everywhere. Um, And so I think going back and inquiring, whether it's trauma um, with a person who's qualified to do that with you, or whether it is quite simply sitting down and thinking about a chronology, you know, these are the points at which things change for me. I've done that before, a couple of years ago. I remember going, right, just sit, sit down and write down the points you remember. And how they changed how you felt about yourself, and what you told yourself you were capable of. Who was around? What was going on? And how did that change your sh- trajectory? And in my case, it was about it made it was the points at which I made myself smaller. Well, I made myself smaller, but literally for me, I was making myself a lot bigger. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's important when you are behaving in ways that you are not happy with now to take a compassionate, um, inquisitive, curious approach to what has brought you to this place
1: talk to me about imposter syndrome it's it's kind of loosely used uh, as many phrases are nowadays and and I'm not sure everybody really understands what imposter syndrome really means
0: it's when you feel like a fraud despite um demonstrating that you deserve to be in certain spaces and that you've ticked boxes that you should have you know that that other people have ticked and some people have it and some people don't and a lot of people talk to me about it now which is interesting because as a label I never started using it but I guess I've been describing it in the way that I've been speaking and describing addressing it in myself in the way that I've been speaking Um, so people ask me more and more about imposter syndrome and one of the things that I find really helpful particularly speaking to women in organizations in really senior at really senior levels who suffer with it terribly is allow yourself to find whatever you find difficult difficult so for example I speak to a lot of people who binge eat privately and they're very shameful about it and then outwardly they are doing extraordinary things that people are applauding them for. Mm-hmm. Now, they know that they can do those extraordinary things far more easily than address this behavior that sort of eludes them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's it's addressing this. It's being proud of how you behave when no one's watching and knowing that you've addressed your Everest that can be transferred into this. And I said this on, a, on Stephen's podcast too. It's funny, actually, I started stammering because that's what I was about to tell you about. Um, I, you know, I have done a bunch of things that other people find difficult uh, that I don't find as difficult as other people find them. Um, like, for example, maybe it's because I knew all those tools about behavioral change. But although my books were, there were, there were lots of elements of, of my books that challenged me, writing books and writing articles and things, it, I'm I'm good at it. I am not good at things like, oh, I wasn't good at things like setting boundaries. I wasn't good at dealing with anxiety and I wasn't good at dealing with um, food and all or nothing thinking around diets and body image. So I would be applauded in one area of life and for some reason I just wasn't internalizing it. And I think it was because I knew the things that I found really hard. I knew deep inside, if I'm honest with myself, the things I found really hard, I still wasn't, was still... I was still really vulnerable to having just thrown me down. So it wasn't until I addressed these things that I was really able to walk past my book in a shop and be like, this is my book, you know? It just, I kind of felt like something was missing. And I don't know if it was an integrity piece or what. And now I speak to women all the time and I'll say to them, don't worry about what you're trying to do in terms of how much you want to earn, where you want to get to, whatever. Even though we're working in a corporate environment, I'll say to them, what is it that you find really hard? And they'll say something like, well, saying no when someone invites me to something I don't want to go to. Or, you know, something that you don't think that that person will find difficult. Mm. And then I will. And then that's the mission we'll set them. And then they won't see that it's a tenuous link between that and getting a pay rise. You know, so you have to let people. I think the way to address imposter syndrome is to get honest with yourself about what you find difficult and set that as your goal to change that. Regardless of whether it's technically difficult mastery wise or you think you should find it difficult mm-hmm. and give yourself permission it's okay you're not stupid you're not weak that just happens to be your thing um i think that makes an enormous difference and i'm seeing people make huge changes myself included you
1: know um yeah i hadn't i hadn't thought like that but it's it's bang on the money isn't it i think so it really is T- tell me tell me The type of client, typical client that you would deal with, what kind of challenges do they face on a regular basis?
0: More than anything now, binge eating.
1: Binge eating is the big thing.
0: Because do you know what? It's really hard to have a conversation about weight loss because um, people who get what I'm doing understand that I'm not peddling weight loss. I'm helping people who got screwed over by diets and for whom binge eating um, is first and foremost an issue with their mental health. So a lot of my clients don't want to lose weight. They have no interest in weight loss. They just want to be rid of this dependence and powerlessness over food, around food. And I don't think that it's taken me a lot time, a lot of time to work out how to talk about that in a way that I'm proud of. So I think I'm more and more doing more broadcasting stuff. I'm helping people to find that vocabulary so they can explain to other people. This isn't about weight loss. But I'm allowed to want to lose weight. As well, mm-hmm. not least if it was the weight loss diets that screwed me over and left me with binge eating disorder mm-hmm. that makes me gain weight I don't want to gain. So that a lot of it, and also um, people who want again imposter syndrome, self esteem, self talk. Essentially, what I help people to do in every context, whether it's binge eating or alcohol or procrastination, productivity, is have that conversation with themselves when things get difficult. That that talks them into making a choice they'll be proud they made the next day, talks them into making the choice they would make if people they respect were watching them, and talks them into making a choice that they would recommend the people they love most in the world make. I just help them to close that gap. And then once you've learned it in one area, you can apply it to the rest of your life. And I've made myself
1: redundant to you. So essentially it's mastering positive self-talk.
0: Positive, but also honest and self-aware and compassionate. Mm and useful you know common sense as well
1: it's what's resonating with everything that you're saying to me is 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 that as you say it, it kind of like it's grabbing me it's this this conversation that you have with yourself you know whether that's a um uh we call it the devil and the angel or whatever it may be the conscious subconscious you know my my, my story would be um we have the subconscious which is uh essentially our risk management system and our risk management system wants us to not take any risk, which means it wants us to lay on the sofa, put the remote control on the chest and get a packet of Pringles mm-hmm. and don't move because that's there's no risk in that. And so you have to overrule the subconscious behaviour with conscious behaviour where you say, no, we're not going to sit on the sofa, okay? We're going to go out and experience stuff. you know, We're going to try something, whether that's going for a walk, going to the movies, we're going to go try something different. And it's being conscious about that, having that real conversation to say no, mm-hmm. as opposed to we, people do it with spending money. OK, I'm 53. We never had these devices when I was young. So you would have to go with your checkbook, which was yay big, carry the checkbook around and go and write a checkout to buy something. OK, if you weren't using cash. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't have the cash, you couldn't pay for it with a cheque you then could. That made it one step easier. Now people just take their phones and go bat, bat, Frictionless, bat, bat. yeah. Yeah. And and what's happening is they have then this, this really bad relationship with money because of subconscious spend. So they're spending money without thinking about it. And the proof of that is whenever you sit down with somebody and you say to them, right, so tell me about what you spend. Your salary is, I don't know, £10,000, let's say. Oh, you've got your fixed costs, your mortgage, your car payments and all that, yada, yada, yada. Right, so that's that's 2,000, that's gone, so you've got 8,000 left. So how much of the, how much of the rest of it do you spend? Oh, no, I don't spend much of that, you know. Okay, great, so if there's 8,000 that's left, no problem, then over the last 12 months you'd have saved 96,000, so that'll be in your bank account, won't it? And they look at you and they're like, yeah. Okay, so how much is in your bank account? Uh 25 grand. Okay, so where's the difference? No, you must have got your numbers wrong, Spence. And I'm like, have I got my numbers wrong? because we know what your fixed costs are. You've told me how much you spend on your kids' after-school activities. You've t- you told me how much money you spend at Tesco every every week. You told me you go out for dinner once a week and it's an average of 100 pounds. You tell me this. We've worked this all through. Where's the rest of the money going? And they honestly have no idea. Because they're like... Because
0: of the frictionless processes. Because
1: of this subconscious spending. They're not thinking about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And all of the little things add up. And I suppose it's that kind of behavior that you want to try and change in people to get them to be kind of hyper aware and to have the conversation before they do. And it's something as simple as being in the petrol station. They fill the car up, they walk into the to the petrol station, they go to pay for the petrol, they grab two Mars bars or whatever it is, a Gatorade, a newspaper, a, a pork pie, whatever it might be, chuck it on the counter with some chewing gum and then blip. And then, before they know it, there's 15 quid that's been spent on crap. Mm-hmm. But teaching people to be really aware of that with their money. And I suppose it's having that conversation. Do we really really need the pork pie? Do I really need the newspaper?
0: I think there are two things there. I think one of them is um, you're right about the frictionless processes. Um, And obviously that's by design. I think one of the things that really helps and people underestimate is just preempt the things that are going to challenge you. It's extraordinary how much we, on the spot, we think that our behaviours that we later regret are an exception. Like, oh, just this once and then you'll see that you've done them 50 times in a row. And if you just get up in the morning and guess like today my intention is to not spend that much money or not eat pork pie or whatever. That's all. That's all you have to do is guess the things that you look at your day ahead, look at the things that tend to challenge you. Look at the things you're likely to do and just if I had to put money on it, this is where things are going to go that way this is where I'm going to want to do that based on what I know of myself. And it's amazing. Just a couple of minutes of that. And when it happens, it disrupts the autopilot. And that's when you want to have a conversation with yourself that isn't just firm, but it's compassionate and almost a little bit smug. Like, ah, yes, I knew this was going to happen. I guess this Of course I find this hard. I've done it the last 50 times. The same way you would if you were helping a kid to stop doing something that it was used to doing 50 times. You wouldn't be like, you shouldn't want to do this. You'd be like, of course you want to do this. We've done this the last 50 times at the same time. Of course it's going to be hard. But if we don't do this a few times in a row, you're just going to get used to the new status quo and then you're going to forget this was even a thing. So it isn't just, you know, the sort of compassionate self-talk is also about factoring in the self-awareness and also just the concept of mastery. Of course, this is hard. It's always going to be hard. You're used to this. Do it a few times in a row. won't be so hard. You know, hold it lightly. Not, oh God, here I am again. We called me, you know, which in my case, if I speak to myself that way or back in the day, would make me want a pork pie more than anything. Although not a pork pie specifically, because I don't trust meat. I can't see. Okay. but like, like encased meat scares me. Just <laughs> dishonest. <laughs> I want to know what's going on. Same with stews and things. But yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that's the thing. A lot of people ask me, like, you've written a book about kindness. How can kindness and behavioural change go together? Because behavioural change is hard. So you can hold firmness and compassion together. You can say, of course, I'm finding this hard. Of course, it's difficult. It's really cool that I've decided to do something hard. I can do hard things. Um, well done, me. Well done, me. I'm going to do this hard thing and two hours is going to be over.
1: That's cool. So as you're telling me that, I'm thinking about, I get it, it just just reverts back to my life. So... I go to the movies every now and then, and uh, people say to me, what movies do you see? I said, well, it's not really relevant. And they're like, why? I said, because I typically fall asleep at the movies. And they're like, well, why do you go? Uh, well, I go for the popcorn. Mm. And I, I only go, I go for the popcorn. I go to the, with these recliner sofa things in, in, in Dubai, in, in the cinemas. Uh, I go there, I get the Coke, I get the big box of popcorn, I eat the popcorn, I drink the Coke, and I fall asleep. The blanket is nice. up over me, and because it's always cold in there, and then I fall asleep. And as you're saying what you're saying, I'm thinking about the popcorn. I'm like, do I really need the popcorn? Why? Why do? And why do I tell everybody? I, and what, why is that my story? Like, literally, why is that? Why am I almost proud to tell you? No, 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 no. I've uh, I've never seen the ending of a movie. Okay, I only go for the popcorn and the coke. It's like what. What's what you know? To me, this clearly some humour in that because I'm even smiling as I'm talking to you right now, and it's but like.
0: How is the ritual serving you though? It's, it's not. not without any judgment, but it is right. You're going somewhere. You're going. You're taking yourself to a dark room, right? To do something you enjoy doing. Is are there no pros to this act? This activity. I don't.
1: At I don't. I don't go to the cinema to watch a movie. Like when I get on a plane, everyone puts headphones on and they try and watch a movie. I, I I'm I have real issues with that. So why wouldn't you eat popcorn at home? Because they don't make popcorn at home. Popcorn's at the movies. (laughs) i got some
0: news for you. There's a much cheaper way to get your popcorn here. (laughs) Because it costs like 20 quid to eat popcorn at the movies too.
1: But it's just like, I I would never have popcorn at home. I would only have popcorn at the movies. I don't even like it that much because I'd only have it at the movies. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I think you might want to look into what you associate with going to the movies.
1: Yeah, too, but that's the interesting worth. thing, though. Yeah. It's making me think like that. It's like, can I have a conversation with myself where I, where I, where I celebrate that I've been to the movies, I've watched the end of a movie, and and I didn't need the... the Because you know, I go in there with my wife, and she buys a bottle of water.
0: Or just do it every other time. Do you know what I mean? Like, You don't have to be that... Like, that's it. Never again, either. Because I think sometimes that brings about a sort of rebel with no cause mentality. Like, am I going to be good this time? I'm going to be bad this time. I'm going to keep up my streak. Why don't you just say 50% of the time I tend not to have popcorn. Hold it lightly. Have a few nuts instead or whatever. I think that's kind of the problem is that we hold ourselves to these like, I speak to a lot of people who identify as perfectionists. Yeah. Like, why would I do that? I'm either going to be like the king of not eating popcorn Or I'm going to eat all the popcorn in the world. I'm drowning popcorn, you know?
1: Um,
0: Why don't you just say, I'm going to eat half the amount of popcorn. Every other time I'm going to... And it just makes you feel more empowered. Like you're the boss of the situation. Popcorn is not the boss of you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But it's that bossing that situation.
0: Yeah. And then the rebellion. Oh, I said I wouldn't eat popcorn. I told everyone I wasn't going to eat popcorn on a podcast. So now you're going to end up having having to be like privately putting on disguises <laughs> in the corner in Dubai.
1: <laughs> that's
0: that. That's that guy.
1: That's the guy with the popcorn. I swear, in the
0: wig, <laughs> 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 check yeah. glasses and the stuff. Exactly. He, he doesn't care about the film. He's here for the popcorn. <laughs> he said, "Just watching some kids' film or something, just to get your popcorn hit." Which, PS, you can get at home, but it's cool. They I even, eat popcorn at home.
1: They even deliver the popcorn from the movie theatre to your house in Dubai.
0: That Actually, that doesn't surprise me.
1: You don't have to do anything in Dubai. You don't, you don't even go to the petrol station anymore. They deliver the petrol. Yeah. I have an app on my phone. So when I get back from the gym in the morning, I have an app on my phone. As I pull into my driveway, I go onto the app, Cafu it's called, and you press the button and it comes and fills up your, your cars.
0: Well, you should be proud of yourself for getting up and going to the cinema then, <laughs> gym, <laughs> or anywhere.
1: Frankly, yeah, you don't. You literally don't need to leave the house for anything.
0: Oh, thank goodness we didn't have that here when I was at uni. <laughs> I literally <laughs> wouldn't have left halls. <laughs>
1: yeah, mad, right? Yeah. Talk, talk to me about your career. I'd, I'd like to know the, the impact that you, oh, you had when you were first. or oh, so what you learned when you were first. Understanding addiction, and you were working with these types of people, and how your career evolved over that period of time. What were the kind of like the the milestones along the way that made you go, hmm, I want to move forward in this direction more so than this?
0: I'm not sure I was as intentional as it might seem. I feel like I got, I always get my head down and just carry on doing what I seem, what seems to be going right, and then people notice. That's what's always happened. People notice, and then they want me to come along with them. Like, and provided, and I get better at things when I get my head down and I really enjoy what I'm doing, then I'll just get really good at things quickly. And quite the opposite is true, of course, if I'm not interested. And so, for example, what how, how it happened was that um, I got um, I got my placement with the NHS, which was a year long in, in substance misuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to work in addiction services in, in, in the UK, not for long, before I got... Um, this, this man called Ray, who, who taught me so much, came in to train us on, on the suite of um, evidence-based approaches you could use with your clients who were resistant to change. So it, it was kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, all like 20 different things he taught us. And I was trained in all this stuff. And I went up to him and I was like, can I do what you do? And before long, I was doing what he did. And we were going around and consulting to the NHS, to probation services, to all sorts of places, Ministry of Justice. Um, And I quickly moved, moved up the ranks and I was going into consultation meetings and saying, this is what I think you should do to get people who are in addiction out of addiction very quickly. And I was obsessed with it. I mean, I was everything. I used to really not like studying at all. And all of a sudden I was like, what research backs this up? What research backs that up? So rather than finding like, the word for something I used to go see what worked what was working with real people the last 100 people changed because of this The last 200 people changed because of this this didn't work can stack that off and then I would go find what it was actually called okay and then um, um a journalist who I'd met a couple times through a very dear mutual friend contacted me and said look I've been to AA it's not for me but I'm drinking too much and I want to drink less and her name's Marisa Bate and she's an extraordinary writer and she said and sh- and I agreed to meet with her because I'd just gone to the school, I missed out a bit. I started noticing because I started using those tools that I was passing on and this suite of different approaches that was technically for clinical addiction services. I started using them on myself around food and I was watching extraordinary things happen I was I was able to lose weight in a way that I was barely trying in my opinion because I wasn't dieting I was liking myself more I was changing the way I spoke to myself I was making plans that actually worked based on evidence-based behavioral change models and behavioral activation that we were using in addiction that were working on food and exercise and then I was going into to train NHS staff and at the end of the training even though I was training them to work multidisciplinary teams um everything from like receptionists to like clinical leads and managers um i was teaching them how to and by the way receptionists are extraordinary people in those services they're engaging people when they first come in when they're at their most vulnerable when they've dropped in um but i was te- i was giving them the tools to work with these people highly resistant people and to motivate them to want to stop taking drugs ultimately and they started cottoning onto the fact that these tools were useful for themselves so they'd be like, oh, can I take a couple more of those because I've been smoking? Or can I take a couple more of those because I've been procrastinating or whatever else? And they would just scrub out the words like heroin or whatever else and put in whatever they wanted. And then they would report back to me that it was working. So that, that kept happening. And then I went to the School of Life in, in London and I said to them, can I just pitch this? And I don't want to call, I don't, I don't want a single word about addiction. And I don't want anyone to tell me what they're in for. I'm so determined to prove that you can change any habit using these tools that I don't need to know what anyone in the workshop is here for and I'll be able to give them a plan of change, help them to understand why they haven't changed um, and they won't need to come back to me. And it sold out and then it sold out and it sold out and they made me a faculty member. Um, And then Marisa um, saw that I was doing well in this area in my own right and going off and doing my own thing too, as well as the consultancy with uh, Ray. And she said, um, can you talk to me? So for I think 12 weeks, I went and met her in a cafe on Great Portland Street and we just talked and what I did with her was I, I'd, I'd never done this before because in NHS services, we, had, we were just helping people to become to gain complete sobriety. We, I wasn't working in harm reduction and the waiting lists were too long anyway. So everyone, by the time they were working with me, the ambition was, whether it was in criminal justice or substance, substance misuse, the goal was to stop drinking altogether forever. Marisa wasn't in that category, um, but she wanted to talk about alcohol. And I decided to go a bit renegade and just pretend that she had to drink the same way I have to eat and find a version of recovery while you still use the substance that you find tricky. Um, and so I just did that. I did for her what I did for myself. And then one day I woke up and she written an article about it. And that article went well. So I literally Googled like therapy room <laughs> and I haven't really looked back. Um, Yeah, I got emails from my now agent, ignored a couple of them because I thought they were spam, saying, do you want to write a book? Um, It went to a five publisher auction. I'd never written anything in my life. I wasn't on Instagram, nothing. I just really believed in this stuff, though. I really did. At no point did I think I don't deserve to be sharing this because I was seeing it work with people who were really resistant to change. Everything was working against them. And I wasn't as concerned about how well the book would do as much as getting this message out there because I knew these tools were harmless. People could use them on themselves and they were free. Um, So I was really passionate about that. So that's what I did. And now that's what I do. And now I talk about those books and I do, you know, coaching and going to organizations and whatever else. Um, And now here I am talking to
1: you. Do you know Owen O'Kane? No. So Owen O'Kane wrote How to Be Your Own Therapist. He was here this week. Oh, yeah. And he... Sorry, Owen. Yeah. He's an Irish guy from Northern Ireland. Um, Really fascinating story about how he was gay and so he didn't understand. He just had a thing for John Travolta when he was a kid and playing the piano. It's a beautiful story, actually. Yeah, It really is. It's a beautiful story. Um, And... How to be your own therapist was just to try and help people that couldn't afford to go to therapists, okay, and teach them the tools that they needed to be able to help themselves, no matter what they'd gone through in their traumas. But because he'd gone through quite a traumatic experience in his life, I think people are able to identify with that when someone's someone like you, you 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 you've experienced the pain, you've suffered, you've experienced the the real life challenges that some other people have experienced as well. It's almost like if you went through it and you struggled with it and you came out the other side, then there's a lot more validity in that, okay, than, you know, I don't know, I'm mates with Rangan Chatterjee mm-hmm. and he's got a wonderful podcast and he's a fantastic doctor and he's a fantastic speaker, but he's always had a fit and healthy life. And so... I don't know about me, I always buy it. It's almost like the movies, isn't it? When you've got the, you've got the, 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 the Twin Peaks and you've got the various the, the players within a movie. You've got your hero, you've got your villain and your sage. So Star Wars, your villain is Darth Vader. Luke Skywalker is your hero and the sage is Yoda. In uh, Karate Kid, you've got uh, daniel Sun the hero. Cobra Kai is the villain and Mr. Miyagi is the sage. Mm-hmm. And it's like when you've got that story you buy into the story because you can identify with the different people within the story. And so when people come to you, it's like, I would come to you because I'd feel that you were a living example of what you did.
0: Thank you. And also, I, I don't find it easy. Not, I was never a healthy person. I, and I'm still a work in progress. I don't profess to be like uh, good, uh, an I? inspirational. Thanks. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> no, but I um, <laughs> but I mean in there, you know, like I was, I was swimming against the current. And I am not a mourning person. I'm quite like I'm always trying to I'm quite mischievous, and like I was really quite horrible to myself. So now that I've worked with a lot of people, I can re- unfortunately, I can realize that I was really on the extreme end of things. and very resistant to change, and very all or nothing, Very all or nothing. Um if you told me to do something, I was gonna go right the other way, very black and white about everything, highly anxious, very codependent, very unboundaried. And now um, I'm, I'd say I'm pretty good at a lot of those things, but I have to try. I have to keep them on my radar. I believe in what I'm doing and I have to stay honest. So there'll be people who don't relate to what I, what I'm doing. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a guru type. Like, no, but you know what? It's
1: like, I struggle, really struggle with people that teach people to do stuff that have never done it themselves. So yeah, that is tricky. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you're going to go and learn to drive a car, you better hope that the driving instructor can drive. Yeah, and in fact, you wouldn't get in the car if he couldn't. If you're going to go and learn Spanish, probably best to learn from someone that speaks Spanish. Yeah, <laughs> probably. How the hell are you going to learn from someone? Else? Exactly.
0: <laughs> no, but that's but except, uh, but Then, you know, but then yeah. to me,
1: to me, I have the issue because it's like, um, you know, there's these people out there. I don't know, million, become a millionaire. I can teach you how to become a millionaire. Are you a millionaire? No. A lot of I those people
0: you. need you to sign up so they become millionaires. Right, absolutely. I can't bear that. Absolutely.
1: I, I, can't bear I, find, that. I find that really, really challenging. It's like if you don't, if you've never walked in that, those shoes, you don't have the credibility to me. Now, all the coaches that are listening to this right now, and I'll look at the camera, that's what I believe. Okay. I believe a lot of you are actually frauds. That's what I believe, right? I know you won't like it, but I don't believe if you're going to teach someone to make a load of money, if you haven't made a load of money yourself, then, yeah, right, just get yeah. that. But do, you, do you, are you on a similar page to me with that? And that's because that's, that's why I identify with what you're saying a lot. It's just like, when I know that you suffered, when I know that you struggled and I know that you, you, there's always a climb involved in you and your life and what you do and it relates so directly to the problems that you're trying to solve for other people. I identify with that and, you, you, and you're worthy to me because of that.
0: Well, I appreciate that because I underestimated lived experience before and like so many people who are now in these like made up professions that that we have. Um, I was like, but I'm not a doctor, you know, but I didn't like study absolutely everything at uni and I messed about and all of that stuff. And yeah, I was like, I've done thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours listening, studying people and sitting by myself and talking myself through things and making sure that I practice what I preach. And I still do it today, every single day, all day I practice. And it's the people who are at the most extreme end of things who come to me and who I'm able to help. And so that I'm really proud of. And that does come from lived experience. Don't get me wrong. I make sure that I know what's like happening in psychology and whatever else. But of course we know so little. Um, And so I've always based what works on what works on the most extreme case. And I was one of the more extreme cases Um, and continue to be to some degree. So that definitely... um, Interestingly, I don't necessarily think you can't teach people something if you haven't um, suffered or had a challenge. But I think that um, people who have suffered and found it very challenging probably won't, won't relate to you. and They probably won't feel that you know where they're coming from. So for me, for example, um, people don't doubt for one second that I used to be a binge eater. They don't doubt it for a single second. Anyone who binge eats knows when I start talking about it, What I'm about. So, you could go learn everything you want about eating disorders, but unless you know all the tiny little nuanced things, I mean, there's millions of tiny things that I'll say in a conversation and people will go, Oh my God, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. You can't learn that. That's when you're sat by yourself in your flat, crying over something that other people don't cry about, despairing, and working out how you're going to get yourself out in a way that you're proud of. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard and no one cares and nobody's watching. And one day that ends up being why you connect with someone who no one else has been able to help. Um, but I will say, I don't think, I do think that some people can be helped by coaches. Um, it's when things go wrong that I think some of those coaches struggle to know what to do, Mm. to sit in the discomfort of saying this person is going through a challenge that I've not been through. Mm -hmm. It's not the learning. I think sometimes it's the unlearning of something that's become quite embedded for a long time. That's where I found that it's, it's helped me to have lived experience. Mm. Okay.
1: Right, let's just go through giving me, giving me a class. Okay, we've got this kindness method. There's some steps involved in this. I want everyone to understand the exact steps. We've talked kind of like around this stuff this morning, but give, okay. give me the exact steps because I want to. I want to. I want people to take this away with them.
0: You want my whole book?
1: Give it for me. free. <laughs> <How much laughs> i right. you charge you charging book.
0: <laughs> I don't know how much Amazon charges now. It's all gone used and new. <laughs> right, so. First of all, if you want to change a habit, you want to get a snapshot of where you're at today. An honest, private snapshot. This is where I'm at today. Um, This is where things have got to. And here I am writing this letter to myself. Dear me, this is where we're at. Next, you want to get really honest about why you want to change. I cannot tell you how frequently people come to me and in the first session, they will give me the answers that they think that the motivators or the drivers or the why that they think other people want them to have. Health you know, running after my kids in the playground. And it isn't until we got to know each other that they trust me enough to say that some of their motivators are not so noble. Those are going to have to come into the very personal conversation you have with yourself when you want to throw yourself off track. So get clear on your personal motivators and get okay with them. Third of all, sack off anything that hasn't worked in the past. There was nothing wrong with you. You weren't weak-willed. There was something wrong with the plan. Cannot tell you how many people will come to me and they will try out plans that worked for them 25, 30 years ago. And keep chasing that plan, even though the landscape of, landscape of their life has completely changed. When you're building up a streak initially with your first plan of change, create the conditions that make it most likely for you to say in two or three weeks, I did what I said I was going to do. Whatever that is. It's the self-efficacy that will keep you going. Um, what you also want to be doing is thinking about your self-talk. So write down what you tend to say to yourself when you fall off track with a plan or you disappoint yourself, and then write down what you would say to someone you love or who you were being paid to motivate if they fell off track with a plan and then compare the two. And then on this one where you've written uh, the name of a person you love, cross their name out, put your name on, take a picture of it and keep it on your phone. And the next time you want to throw in the towel, um, just make a commitment to looking to that because that's by your own admission those are the words that motivate people get ready for moments where you're not going to want to do this preempt those moments you won't be able to guess all of them but preempt them get them out there when i go do this thing when this person does this to me when the weather is this i'm not going to want to go to the gym i'm not going to whatever get ready to have that conversation with yourself that goes yes this is my opportunity this is the challenge i've been waiting for because it's all good and well um We all know how to stay on track when things are going well. Real shifts, real boosts in self-efficacy and self-esteem and all of it happen when when we behave differently when faced with challenge. So I think if you can get excited about reframing challenge as the opportunity you need to speed up getting good at something so it's easy eventually, that's a game changer. Rather than thinking, oh God, I don't I don't want to go over there. Oh God, it's, it's happened. It's happened. You go, yes, it's happened. Because this is the quickest way. If I'm going to honestly believe that I've changed and when I get there, believe that I'm going to stay there, then I'm going to need a few of these tests and I'm going to need to respond to them differently. And in those moments where you're wondering what is the kind of decision you want to ask yourself and, and your plans haven't got to plan, you haven't got guidelines, your, your spreadsheets haven't guessed everything because they won't, you want to ask yourself three things. What choice will I be proud that I made tomorrow? What choice would I, made, would I make right now if a, the person I respect most in the world was watching me? And what would I recommend someone I love did right now if they were faced with the same challenge? And then you don't need a plan. And then you take it choice by choice in the direction of the outcome that you want. That's it. I mean, there's more in the book, obviously, by the book. Oh, and hypothetical change. One more thing. Oh. Think about the two possible outcomes whether it's by the end of the day today or by the end of the year, compare the two outcomes, knowing yourself as you know yourself. If I engage in these habits in six months time or a year's time, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be saying this to myself. And these parts of my life are going to be impacted by it. And if I make the changes I want to make in three or six or nine months, this is where it'll be. And write it all out and compare the two. Because on days when you feel like nothing's changing, we rarely keep things as, as they are. Certainly the people I work with are only ever making things better or worse. <laughs> so <laughs> move them in that direction It's one way or another and ch- chase the exciting outcome there um, more than the outcome that you know, that you already know, that you're familiar with, that you're not happy with. That's my two cents.
1: You've written two books? Yeah. You got another one lined up?
0: I hope so. I've I've been writing proposals recently, yeah. I want to write a book on imposter syndrome. I want to write a book on um, reframing discomfort as a concept and how compassion and discomfort can go together. I want to create an alternative framework for um, addiction treatment that's Mm -hmm. more compassion-based and roll that out. And I also want to write a book for young women.
1: Why? Why young women in particular?
0: Because more and more of the stats around the point at which the confidence of young women drops, and the contribution that that has to things like imposter syndrome and low self-worth and gender pay gap, uh-huh. um, makes me think that I could get in at a useful make age, a yeah, and disrupt that.
1: You wrote a book called The Last Diet, mm-hmm. okay, and you wrote a book called The Kindness Method. Did you make them audio books, or were they just yes? You have so people can get them in Audible. Yeah. Did you narrate them yourself? I did. Excellent stuff. Yeah. Okay, good. So people can go on Audible for listening, to go on their morning walks, get in the car and drive and have the opportunity to listen. People work with you one-to-one. You said to me before we started recording that there's just not enough hours in the day to be able to service all of the the requirements that people have. What's the solution to that?
0: Gotta scale. (laughs) Gotta scale. I want to roll things out more in organisations, in policy and, you know, I want to work... I want to, the one-to-one work enables me to do the stuff that doesn't pay as much that I like to do Mm -hmm. or pay at all that I like to do. Um, And I'm proud of where I've got to in that sense. I really am because there would have been a time where I wouldn't have dreamt of the sorts of things that I can command now in a one-to-one capacity. Mm -hmm. But I feel I want to be in a team where the people around me are affecting the same kind of change. And I'm able to measure more effectively how people are doing. Mm -hmm. And then three and six months, six and nine months later, and the impact that it's having on their lives and their families and their bottom lines and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think eventually it's about saying now, it's not about me anymore. Like I'm happy to go out and spread the word. And I can see that I'm good at that. And I'm really proud of myself for being good at that. Um, But I I wish that every time I got like a, a stream of interest, like after this, I'm sure, and like after Stephen, and after when you know when the book does well, uh, or people talk about it in the press or whatever, I wish that there was a team behind me that could absorb that and then and then measure how well it's doing and me- and go back and see how those people are doing and what they need and all of that stuff, rather than just it being about me,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, because it's it's clear to see now that my lived experience has um, struck a chord, but it's not uncommon. I think the way I describe it is getting across to people, but people are really relating to it. And now enough people, thousands and thousands, thousands of people are getting it in a way that means it doesn't need to be about me. It can be programs and it can be things that are just filtered out to people and their families and their children. And then we can break these generational you know, patterns around people not liking themselves enough and feeling, mm-hmm. feeling that they have to hand themselves over to gurus and things to make changes. So, yeah, I want to make, I want to have more of a, I want to
1: share it more. There was a, a documentary called Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead that was made some years ago by uh, a guy that essentially was was making himself sick. And so he went to America for a month to live on a juice diet. Mm-hmm. But after a few days of the juice diet, he decided to drive across America. And he had a particular disease. And it's very a very unusual disease. But he met one guy on his travels across America that had the same disease. And... They both worked on solving that problem together. The, it, was, it was a great documentary. And the guy, the guy that had the disease was really overweight. Anyway, he cured the disease, lost all of this weight naturally. Wonderful story to be told. The second part of the documentary came out a year later where he gets, this guy gets a phone call from the guy that had lost all the weight. He's put it all back on. And so mm-hmm. he goes back on. And so he flies over there and they go through this journey together. When you, when you watch documentaries like this, and that that was food-related, it doesn't have to be food-related, but when you watch documentaries where people have been in a certain place and there's been almost an intervention in in many ways to try and create a, a, a different outcome and a different result, and people have then got that outcome and result, I love that kind of stuff. It's just like, yes, you know, and that's what I believe you need to be doing. You need to be making television documentaries where you help people do that. And if that's something you'd like to do, I think I might be able to help you.
0: Please do. That's wonderful. That's so weird that you say that because I was just about to submit a proposal for one to someone who had, but I would, I would, I will take that offer and I would be very grateful because you know what? Also, I would have never dreamt that there was a day where I could get in front of a camera like this, both because I was stammering so much because of my body image issues. I wasn't able to keep eye contact. I wasn't sure of what I was saying and I would come away from things, interviews and things or anything really. And I'd come away and be like, what have I done? What did I say? And that's not the case anymore. And um, so, yeah, I'll take it. I really want to spread the word about this stuff, particularly with the binge eating. People feel so misunderstood and so not taken seriously, frankly. Um, And it's a huge contributor to obesity. I'm determined to prove that because people are depending on food in a way that they do other drugs and they don't want to tell people. So I don't think we know how many people are binge eating. Mm -hmm because they find it embarrassing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm up for that. Let's do it.
1: So, Ru, thank you so much for coming to join us today on the show.
0: Thank you for having me.